welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, I want to try and wind up the series that we've been briefly involved with in the last uh, three weeks. This is week four, and we've called, we've called the series Fluid. And I've based the idea around, um, around the fact that we're living in a world of phenomenal change. Um, to say the world changes fast is sort of cliche-ish. People are talking about the fact that we're in transition, which is their, their definition is when change itself changes. And people are using words like churn and blur and a whole lot of other words to try and capture the idea that our culture, that our society is in just this massive, massive change. So I started off the series suggesting that, metaphorically speaking, we live in Kevin Costner's water world, that everything that was fixed and uh, established and understood has literally been swamped, and that we can no longer, negotiating, no, no longer negotiate our world using the fixed points that previous generations used because they have literally been washed away with a tsunami of change. Um, I suggested that the Janet and John world of my childhood no longer exists. It has long gone. And uh, how, do we, how do we live? How do we negotiate a fluid world? Um, to survive in a seascape, you need very different set of instruments and a very different set of skills uh, than you do on a land-based culture. And so that's been kind of the undergirding idea of this particular series. And so far, I've considered the fact that navigation in a seascape is very different than navigation in a land-based uh, sort of setting. Uh, in a land-based setting, you've got mountains and hills and valleys by which you can get your bearings. But in a seascape, the surface is changing constantly. And if you're going to navigate, you have to navigate not by something on the surface of the sea, but by something in the heavens. And we talked about the fact that ancient sailors used to use the North Star, Polaris, as their fixed point. And I talked about that fixed point being the person of Jesus Christ. We talked also about the need for an anchor. And I suggested to you that anchors are used for two things. Number one, to stop you going where you don't want to go. And number two, to help you go where you do want to go by an ancient process called kedging. In other words, they could take the anchor out in a small boat, drop it, and then winch the ship out toward it and repeat that again and again. And by doing that, you can get off the shoals, off the sandbank. You can go where you want to go. And we talked about the Word of God as being an anchor that um, anchors us so that we aren't simply blown around by the, uh, the, the currents of our culture. And I also talked about the promise of the Word of God being like that kedge anchor, which allows us to pull ourselves, to winch ourselves toward those things that God has promised us. Last week, I talked about the idea of having ballast beneath the waterline, ballast in your boat, um, the counterweight that stops the waves simply tipping you over and you having no chance of being righted again, ballast in the in the, bow, in, in the bottom of the boat, usually attached to the keel or in tanks of water or underneath the waterline, are what provide that counterweight. And we talked about, we talked about um, character as opposed to image. 
image of are things or concerns things that are above the waterline that people see, that people comment on. You know, we live in an age of image and celebrity. We don't talk a lot in our culture about character, but it's not image and personality that holds you in storms, it's character. And we briefly talked about uh, integrity of heart as being the substructure of, of a godly life. In concluding the series tonight, I want to touch on another concept that's essential to grasp if you're going to survive at sea, and it has to do with the issue of sufficient freeboard. Now, freeboard, for those of you who don't know much about boats or ships, is the distance between the waterline to the free deck of a loaded vessel. The amount of freeboard that you have represents the safety, mass, uh, safety margin that a vessel has <coughs> excuse me, when it's at sea. Now, in calm weather, you know, when you see the sea or the lake glassy calm, the issue of freeboard isn't that big an issue. It's in heavy weather. It's during storms that the amount of freeboard that a vessel has may well be the difference between a somewhat rocky ride or a ship lost at sea. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, unscrupulous ship owners would overload and then over-insure ships that they had no further use for. And those ships would be sent out to sea in the hope that they wouldn't return. Often, because there wasn't sufficient freeboard due to overloading, those wicked owners got both their wish and their insurance payout. Shame about the crew. Collateral damage, I think we call it in our day. Those ships used to be called coffin ships. So alarmed by that situation, a politician, a British politician by the name of Samuel Plimsoll, was deeply disturbed and felt he had to do something to stop such wicked practices. So he lobbied the British Parliament to try and bring that, the, those issues to a head and, and to an end. And in 1875, he was responsible for the Merchant Shipping Act that the Parliament, the British Parliament passed. That act provided for markings on the hull of every cargo ship that entered a British port. And those lines indicated the maximum depth to which a ship could be safely loaded. And what it did was it ensured that there was sufficient freeboard uh, in, in times of, of heavy weather. Originally a British law, ultimately it became a universally agreed safety measure by the 1930s. And those lines on the ship are called the Plimsoll Line, after Samuel Plimsoll. To violate the Plimsoll Line is to deliberately endanger the security of the vessel and to put in danger the lives of the sailors who sail in the vessel. The overloading of ships was a very common practice in the ancient world, and for any of you who have had the dubious privilege of sailing in the third world, uh, you'll know that it's a, it's a practice that is still continued. I've, I've done some trips in the Philippines uh, between islands and ships that you just prayed to God that there wouldn't be a storm between where we started from and where we ended, because they were hopelessly overloaded, and the freeboard... Uh, I mean, I remember sitting on one of the tops of those vessels and the waves were just washing over, over me. And I was on the top as high as I could go. Uh, and, and you just realize how close to the wind, as it were, changing the metaphors, these vessels sail. They're not safety. They're, they're not safe. Uh, 
Um, there were a couple of inst instances in Scripture, actually, where vessels were obviously overloaded, and that whole issue of freeboard was completely compromised, and they got into real trouble in stormy weather. One's in the book of Jonah. Remember a massive storm hitting the boat that Jonah was in, and in verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship to get a bit of freeboard so that they could be a bit safer. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, uh, where we, we actually looked concerning the anchor that we considered a couple of weeks ago, Paul's storm in Acts chapter 27, in verse 18 and verse 38, it says, The next day as the seas grew higher, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The crew lightened the ship further by throwing all of the wheat overboard. So they recognized this issue of freeboard is... Um, is going to sink them unless they can somehow get some more and you do that by lightening the load. What I want to suggest to you tonight is that as we sail on our cultural seascape, we have to be aware of the possibility of taking too much weight on board our vessels and not having sufficient freeboard and as a result in heavy weather, we compromise the safety of our vessel. What I'd like to do is to look at four incidents in Scripture where people were weighed down, where there was too much weight that bore down upon them, and that issue of not enough freeboard actually really endangered them, and then seek to apply that to, to our lives. Can I, just, can I just say that each one of these four things that I'm going to very briefly mention probably deserves at least a sermon and probably a series of sermons on. I'm just going to mention them and leave them with you to maybe think about and perhaps do some study on your own if those issues, say, particularly resonate with you. So the first issue where freeboard was endangered, it was endangered by discouragement. And the passage I want to turn you to is Exodus chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. And uh, Joshua is fighting the people of Amalek. And it says, Joshua did as Moses said and fought with Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. He began to be weighed down. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and, and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Moses was weighed down. His hands became heavy. This is the story of a good man who has become tired and heavy with the struggles of life with the warfare and the constant battle that he was facing. He started well in his assignment, but the, the victory that he'd hoped for had not come in the time frame that he anticipated. And the weight of these circumstances became too much. And he faces the very real danger of his spiritual plimsoll line being violated. He's in danger of being swamped by the discouragement of a struggle that lasts longer than he imagined it would. In this story, two friends come alongside and help him through the heavy weather. They help him and keep him buoyant until the battle is over. And friends, times like this come to nearly all of us. 
We launch into some project with enthusiasm only to find that it's harder than we thought, it takes longer than we anticipated, it costs us more than we imagined it might. And we can grow tired and we can grow heavy-hearted and that weight threatens our plimsoll line and you can be in danger of being swamped. The psalmist spoke of such a time. The message translation of Psalm 119 verses 81 and 82 says, I'm homesick. I'm longing for your salvation. I'm waiting for your word of hope. My eyes grow heavy, watching for some sign of your promise. How long must I wait for your comfort? Comfort. I'm, I'm getting heavy, Lord. I've been waiting. I'm waiting on you. I'm trusting you, but this isn't happening as I imagined it might. This is harder than I thought. It's taking longer than I thought. It's extracting more from me than I imagined it would. I don't know whether I can keep going. And as I said, I don't want to preach a whole sermon on the danger of despondency and discouragement, but in terms of the number of people who fall over as a result of it, probably I should. It is a common means by which the stability of people's vessels become compromised. Depression and discouragement pushed Elijah, Jonah, Jeremiah, and some of the, some of the psalmists well below the plimsoll line at times. And when you find yourself in that situation, when you find your spiritual plimsoll line has disappeared beneath the waves through the discouragement that you're facing, you need an Aaron and a Hur to come alongside and hold you buoyant, keep you buoyant in those times of discouragement. And Aaron and Hur may perhaps metaphorically represent spiritual practices that you need to invest in during such times. Things like worship, prayer, being in the scripture, being in, in fellowship, which ironically are the very things in that season that you least feel like doing. In those times of discouragement, those are the things that most often are thrown overboard instead of the weight of the discouragement being challenged by those practices. Perhaps Aaron and her actually represent people. People that you need to call alongside you to help you, to pray with you, to keep you accountable in this season when you feel like, I don't know whether I'm going to get through. The number of people who I find or I hear have fallen away, and we had no idea that they were even struggling. They didn't tell us. They didn't say, help me, I'm struggling. I don't know whether I can make it through this next season. And, and suddenly you find they've disappeared beneath the waves and you didn't even know they were in trouble. Discouragement is a means by which the enemy of our souls has swamped and sunk many a vessel. Can I suggest to you that you keep your eye on that plimsoll line and when you see it starting to go beneath the waves, get help. Do something. Don't be too proud to ask for help when the cargo that you bear seems too heavy for you. Secondly, there's an occasion when freeboard was endangered by self-indulgence. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 18, it says, It happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli, who was the high priest at the time, and if you know the story, the ark had been taken into battle against the Philistines because the Israelites pretty much at that stage treated the presence of God like a, a rabbit's foot, like a lucky talisman. And they thought, well, if the presence of God is, is in the midst of us, then he will defeat our enemies. What they didn't understand is by virtue of their wickedness, God had become their enemy. 
And so they carry the ark into the presence of the battle and they are defeated. When Eli hears the news, he fell backward off his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for the man was old and he was heavy. Politically correct. He was, he was, uh, he was a big man. Probably we would say he was obese. Eli was Israel's high priest. He lived at a time when the spirituality of Israel was at a very, very low ebb. He was a weak, self-indulgent man, and it showed. He'd made his sons enter into the priesthood, and these boys had made the priesthood a laughingstock. They'd made it a disgrace. They used their authority to serve themselves rather than the people. They profited from the offerings uh, in ways that were entirely inappropriate. They sexually exploited the woman who served at the tabernacle. And their father, it says, Eli saw all this and did absolutely nothing to uh, restrain or rebuke them. The spiritual plimsoll line of this bunch had long disappeared beneath the waterline. They had been warned prophetically of their behavior, but they'd shrugged it off. It appeared that God hadn't done anything immediately, and to all intents and purposes, from their perspective, he didn't seem to care, only he did. And a storm rolled in on one particular day in the form of the the Philistines, I was going to say the Filipinos again, (laughs) I I did that last week, (laughs) the Philistines, and they all perished in one day. Friends, we live in an unbelievably self-indulgent culture in the West. The, the motto and mantra of our time is, you deserve it. You deserve it. And I fear that even in the community of faith, we are totally tarred with the same brush. Jesus spoke to this issue in Luke chapter 21, verse 34, and he said this. He said, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, with drunkenness, with the anxieties of life, and that day, a day of storms, will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Here's Jesus describing a people given to careless ease, is the way the Living Bible says it. We could say this is a people who are completely self-indulgent. When the storms hit, Weighed down by that self-indulgence, they don't have enough spiritual freeboard to stop themselves getting swamped. This scripture talks about dissipation. That comes from a Greek word which has has the idea of a glut of anything. Too much of something, too much of anything that has the effect of weighing us down. Intoxication in in the scripture obviously speaks to our age, too much alcohol. You know, I'm constantly stunned by stories I hear of professing believers who think absolutely nothing of getting rolling drunk on a regular basis. And they say things like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm under grace. And anyone like me who comes along and dares suggest that their, bio, that their behavior is not in line with biblical practices, a la Ephesians 5.18, which just says, don't be drunk with wine, are quickly dismissed as pharisaical legalists. I'm sorry, but I don't think you can get away with that. I don't think you can just dismiss biblical standards that are as clear as that by saying, ah, people who say that, just biblical, you know, they're they're Pharisees. I, I, I don't think that's grace. I think that's much more disgrace. 
We, we speak of people being intoxicated, by the way, with things much more than alcohol. We talk about people who are intoxicated with power or intoxicated with wealth or any number of things. These are things that take our attention so that we're unable to function normally. So dissipation, intoxication, the anxieties of life, Jesus says. It's a phrase used to describe people who are distracted and divided by what's going on around them. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 in the Living Bible says, Anxious hearts are heavy. They weigh us down. And the spiritual plimsoll line goes up and down beneath the waterline. Jesus gave this exhortation, by the way, in the midst of a passage where he was talking about stormy last days. And he's saying people who are weighed down with the self-indulgence of a culture that lives in careless ease will simply not have the freeboard they need to keep them above the waves when those difficult days come. The third occasion where freeboard was compromised was an occasion when it was compromised by materialism. And the passage I've got is Mark chapter 10 verse 22 in the message translation where the Rich young, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus gives him some home truths, and it says, The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. That heavy heart weighed this man down beneath the plimsoll line. This rich young ruler... His plimsoll line was well and truly compromised. I, I love this passage. It says Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Jesus loved the man enough to tell him the truth. And basically he said, you know what? You need to be like a sailor in a storm who lightens the load on the vessel by throwing some cargo overboard, son. You have too much cargo and it's dragging you under. Throw it overboard and follow me. If you don't, you'll be lost at sea. This man didn't have wealth. Wealth had him well and truly. And I want to just say to you tonight, you know, prosperity, as much as it can be a blessing, can also be a weight around your neck and can be a curse. And Israel was warned time and time again by God that the very blessings that he gave them could ultimately be weights that dragged them beneath the surface. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 15, it says, Israel grew fat and kicked and filled with food he became heavy. And sleek, and he abandoned God who made him and rejected the God of his Savior. He became heavy, weighed down with the materialistic pursuits of an age that can't see beyond the next thing that I want, the next goal in terms of my finances. I'm not suggesting it's wrong to have them, but when they have you, that's another matter. You know, the interesting thing is, and some of you know this, but Jesus gave more warnings about this thing, materialism, weighing people down than any other thing. And he gives the antidote, too, with such a serious charge against materialism. It's just like Jesus to say, and the answer to that is this, and he does. And he, and he says the answer, by the way, to not being gripped and dragged under the surface of the, earth, of the water by this is, is generosity is learning to be a person who has their hands open in terms of the resources that God both puts in them and then asks them to take out of them. I'm fascinated by a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1, which, in keeping with the nautical analogy we're using, says, cast your bread upon the waters. And the idea there is, 
Be generous is the way the message translates it. Be generous, invest in acts of charity because charity yields high returns. That's what the message says. The good old King James says, cast your bread upon the waters. You hold on to it and will drag you, the weight of it can drag you beneath the waters. Generosity ensures that you stay high and buoyant and have sufficient freeboard. You say to me, Don, how generous is generous? Is there a plimsoll line in terms of marking what is generous? Good question. I'm so glad you asked it. And I would love to answer it for you. Very briefly, there is a, there is a line. And I know perhaps some of you don't want to hear it, but it's called the tithe. It's called the tenth. And the scripture says that's where generosity starts. By the way, some of us think that's the absolute end of generosity. One tenth, are you kidding? Jesus says that's where it begins. That's how we start. Tithing is the systematic setting aside of the first tenth of your income for the purposes of God's work, for God's purposes. And he says, that's where generosity begins. You want to ensure you aren't dragged down beneath the plimsoll line? Then start there. Do that. Make that a practice. Because what it does is it casts your bread upon the water and it allows the buoyancy of God's generosity to lift you up so that there's sufficient freeboard. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 23 says, The purpose of tithing is to teach you to put God first in your lives. Some of you think the purpose of tithing is to make the church wealthy while you get poor. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the purpose is to help you get a handle on having God absolutely numero uno in your life. You say, Don, that's outrageous. Are you suggesting that if I don't tithe, God is not first in my life? I wouldn't dare say that. But Deuteronomy 14.23 seems to. (laughs) Just a thought. Let's move on. Last one, number four. An occasion when freeboard was endangered by religious legalism. Matthew 23 verse 4. They, the Pharisees, tie up heavy loads, Jesus said, and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help them. The living Bible, oh, sorry, the message says, instead of giving you God's law as food and drink by which you can banquet on, they package it in bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads and wouldn't think of lifting a finger to help. You know, loose living at one end, self-indulgence at one end, endangers the plimsoll line. It goes beneath the water by virtue of our careless living. But at the other end of the scale, religious legalism <coughs> excuse me, can push you beneath the plimsoll line as well. A genuine relationship with Christ gives you buoyancy. It lifts you and gives you freeboard. Religious rules that have nothing to do with the development of authentic relationship, have exactly the opposite effect and drive you under the water. You know, so many people over the years have turned their back on Christianity because they perceive it to be a set of rules to be kept rather than a relationship to be enthralled by. 
You know, when, when Karen and I came to Christ, when we got saved, we got saved in the early 70s. Now, I know that some of you think that's 1870. It wasn't, okay? Uh, but it was, you know, as I look around, obviously well before many of you were born. And you probably didn't know, but there was a wonderful move of the Holy Spirit that literally swept the world in the late 60s, early 70s, probably going on into maybe even the early 80s. It started in a movement that, that we termed the Jesus People Movement. And thousands of long-haired hippies, um, including me, where I did have hair those days, okay, I, I did. I know that you find that really hard to believe. But, but thousands of us just got swept into the kingdom of God. We came in um, loving Jesus with all our hearts, wanting a relationship. Having been enthralled by a character, we wanted to develop a relationship. And the church, in many instances, got hold of us and decided to clean us up. Now, the, those of you who are not fishermen, the key issue with catching fish is that you catch them, you take them onto the beach, and you, you clean them up on the beach. The church decided that the fish needed to be cleaned up before they got in the boat, you know, gutted, scaled, before they got in the boat. It's not the way it happens. And, and, and the church decided to clean us up, in many instances, the length of our hair. I remember a friend of mine, and the pastor just simply said to him, I will never use you. I will never use you because your hair's too long. And, and you get it cut, and I'll use you. Well, my friend just said, forget it. What are you laughing about, Donald? <laughs> the second one was facial hair. <laughs> Apparently, we were told it was a sign of rebellion. Then, of course, there was the music we listened to. Not, no rock music. I didn't know there was any other kind. Somebody told me about classical mu mu music, and I thought that was really good rock music. It's classic. <laughs> I, I found out it wasn't. And we had, we had record-burning you know, events. I, I, by the way, I've spent most of the rest of my life trying to buy back some of the albums I burnt. <laughs> of course, the movies we went to, Sound of Music was okay. Most of the rest wasn't. Jeans weren't allowed. Oh, dear. Um... Apparently, denim was quite demonic. I, I, I didn't understand why it was any different to cotton and linen, but it was. And, and we weren't allowed to wear jeans. Studs, earrings, tattoos, alcohol in any form or any amount, and the list was as long as it was insane. And, um, you know, somebody should have written a book about this. And, in fact, they did. It's called the Book of Galatians. You might like to read it sometime. It's about how rules never bring people to Christ. You come to Christ, and then, you know, out of the enthrallment of that relationship, you actually do find there are some movies you don't want to go to. There's some music you don't want to listen to. You don't want to be drunk. Not because you can't get drunk, but because why would I want to do that? I think Jesus would probably be not so happy with me doing that, and I want to please him because I'm enthralled by this relationship. And suddenly, the things that they told us we shouldn't do, we, we weren't doing actually some of those things, but not because they told us not to do them, but because I wanted to please Jesus more than anything else in the world. You can't just bundle up rules and dump them on people's backs. It pushes them down beneath the, the plimsoll line, and, and ultimately they give up because they can't keep the rules. You walk with Jesus, he, he cleans you up. It's what he does. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. And in incredible grace, he leads you and he changes you. 
And you know what? You're delighted with the change. Augustine, great saint, once said, love God and do what you like. Remember the first time I heard that, I thought, really? He was a saint, and he seems to be talking about lawlessness. But it suddenly occurred to me, he wasn't advocating lawlessness. He was saying, if you love God, what you like will be the things that he likes. When you love somebody, you suddenly reorientate your whole world to be interested in the things that they're interested in. You go out with a guy that loves rugby. You've never seen a rugby ball in your life. You think it's a brutal sport. But suddenly, because he loves rugby, you take an interest. How many players are there? Shh, I'm watching. Fifteen. I, I'm an I'm a, I'm a avid rugby watcher, and the thing that I hate most of all is somebody asking inane questions while I'm watching. <laughs> so I had to... I Thankfully, Karen liked rugby when we started going out, and I didn't have to explain those things. But you know, it's amazing, the guy, because he loves the girl, goes through this intricate explanation of what the, of what the rugby ball looks like and the shape it is, because he likes her even though he hates the inane... You know, we do amazing things for love, don't we? Okay, some of you have never thought about it, but, but let it cross your radar. could change your world. God is not interested in a bunch of rule-keeping legalists. Rule-keeping legalists sink the boat and, and plunge us beneath the plimsoll line. In, in our seascape, all of us are going to have times when, when the storms come. There are some things that have the capacity to drag us down beneath the waves. Discouragement, self-indulgence, materialism, legalism. They weigh you down. And I tell you, on a seascape, you need freeboard and you need buoyancy. So keep your eyes on your spiritual plimsoll line. Keep enthralled in your relationship with Jesus. When you need help, get it. When he says, lighten the load, son, cast your bread upon the waters. Don't feel the loss of that thing, feel the freedom of it. It's not a day to be overloaded, okay? Musicians, would you come? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.